0: As, you, as you're just shotgunning the giant gallon of Tropicana. Yeah, <laughs> that's good.
1: Crazy. Our guest today is a is a bottle of red Tropicana.
0: Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we murder horny teenagers, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the goalie of gore herself, Jessica Fraser.
2: Oh my gosh, throw some rollerblades on me. I am in it.
0: <laughs> How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm good. Good. If you're new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you are enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps with discoverability. This week, we're going to be talking about the comic adaptation of the movie, in quotes, classic, Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. We're covering this book, A, because it's spooky season, and B, because this episode is dropping the same week as Friday, October 13th, which is also going to be my wedding day, and this comic is actually going to be one of our centerpieces, so I felt like it was kind of appropriate. And joining us this week for this very special episode is the man who wrote this comic, Andy Mangels. Andy, A, thank you so much for being here, and B, would you mind taking a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Hey, thank you, Mike. As you said, my name's Annie Mangels. I have been a long-time member of the comics and pop culture community. 36, 37 years now, my career's been going on. And people often ask, you know, they know I write comics and I write books, but they kind of ask, well, what is it that you write? And, and I have developed a new logo, which I still have yet to put on my website, but it is my name on two street signs, and then underneath that is Comics Way and Hollywood Boulevard. My career is the intersection of Comics Way and Hollywood Boulevard. Everything <laughs> I've done in my entire career somehow connects to one of those two things, but if not all one or the other, I've written comics. I've written comics based on movies and TV shows. I've written books. I've written books based on movies and TV shows. I've directed documentaries that are based on movies or comic books. I've, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've, I've been in shows. I was in Grimm six times. Oh, I, wow. I have been kind of all over the place when it comes to pop culture and I'm even getting ready to record my first album next year. So it's uh so you know, cool. it's like as, as pop culture is concerned, my career has just been kind of all over the place. But the short answer is I write comics and books. And I have written for such properties as Star Wars, Star Trek, X-Files, Iron Man, X-Men, Justice League, Batman, Ground Elm Street, Child's Play, Quantum Leap, Jason Goes to Hell. A lot.
2: <laughs> wow, those are some really obscure titles. I
1: know, <laughs> I know. <right? laughs> I
2: know. So,
1: pe- people may have to Google a few of those to find out what, what they are. <laughs> what? So
0: when you say Quantum Leap, are you talking about the uh, Innovation Comics? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome.
1: I wrote a very famous issue of Quantum Leap, which still gets referenced and talked about through the years because it took place the week of the Stonewall riots. Oh, wow. And and the whole issue was about gay politics at that exact point in time. And I utilized real people who I knew as a gay man. There were people I knew who were at Stonewall and I utilized real people in the story and it's a very personal story and very prescient as well because in it a lesbian photographer photographs a I remember those, yeah. A transgender black person who is non binary. But at that point in time, we didn't have the terms for non binary. So right. she was doing drag or she was transvestite at that point. But in yeah. actuality, what it was was a transgender person. And that was in nineteen ninety or ninety-three, you know that was that was yeah. three decades before Pose, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so that was my quantum leap. That issue was very very famous because it broke down a lot of barriers and it introduced a lot of people to what the start of the gay rights movement was. That's really cool. Wow,
2: and his mustache <laughs> is infamous.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. And I, I should
2: have mentioned say,
0: that. Like, sorry.
2: Splendid, splendid over video, I might add. You should you should see this thing, everyone. It's big. It's glorious.
0: Thank you. And it has an amazing backdrop full of action figures and a Wonder
1: Woman mannequin and Boba Fett with medals. Uh, like
0: yeah those did, are did he
1: did he win a marathon he did that, that's the wonder woman that's the wonder woman run he he went on it twice and so he got two two and then he's got a hockey over his crotch i don't know what that is but, but he likes the bling
2: i feel like wonder woman was here with us this whole time and I, I love she, it and
1: she is she's she's with me at all times just because of these you know uh yeah yeah <laughs> she's she always looks over my shoulder well we are so
0: grateful to have you here but before we actually start talking about Jason Goes to Hell, because it is October, what is one spooky thing that you have read or watched lately? And Andy, you are a guest of honor, so please kick things oh, off.
1: I gotta go first? Yeah. The the last thing I watched was... Well, last night I watched the second episode of American Horror Story. Oh, the new season? Yeah, this season okay. barely qualifies as horror, and, and my husband even said, like, we've seen all this before. It, it just... A great season, mm. but we did just watch the last voyage of the Demeter, the the the, the Dracula movie, yeah. and and we really liked it. It was quite moody, and even though you knew from the outset that everybody was going to die, yeah. that's pretty that's pretty typical for most horror movies. You knew everybody was going to die except the villain, but it was still fascinating to watch how it rolled out. And it was shot in. Very cool way, but on my list of things to watch, I've got Billy Joe Bob did a show on Necromantic <laughs> that I'm planning to watch. Uh, nice. There's a movie called Chop that's on my list that I want to watch, and you know I keep up with a lot of horror. I'm looking forward to the next season of Chucky. That's it, where Mark Hamill is doing the voice, right? No, no, that's all still the original actor does the voice for Chucky. Oh,
0: really? Okay. Brad Dourif. And did did Mark Hamill did a voice for Chucky at some point? I know. Like, did he do it in the
1: remake that they did recently? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, Okay. He did the remake voice, which is kind of like non-canon, like a fan fiction movie. But Mm -hmm. Brad Dourif does the voice. And then his daughter is also in the new Chucky show. It's funny. When I was working on the, the Child's Play comics, Don Mancini wasn't publicly out at that point in time. And so in the second issue of Child's Play, I wanted to reveal that one of the characters from the movie, the cop, was gay and was in a relationship, and I wanted to have him kiss his lover in the Mm. comic, which would have made it the very first gay kiss in a comic book ever. Yeah.
0: Cause like North Star hadn't even come out by that point
1: in time. Oh no, no, no. This is miles before that. And we had to have a meeting with Universal their team and don mancini and some of the other producers of the movie about that we had already had a meeting about where am i going to take the comic and what storylines am i going to do and so forth but we had a meeting specifically about could i have a gay kiss in the comic and basically they left it up to don who i didn't know was gay i don't know if they knew he was gay or not but he he was like well mm. you know chris sarandon who plays that character he might or might not object to that if we did it in a movie, but I don't mind doing it in the comic. And so we got away with that. Nice. I really digressed there, didn't I? That's how these conversations go. I'm looking forward to the latest season of Chucky just because it's such a wild series, and it's exactly the type of stuff I was doing when I wrote the comic. I was actually going to do a Chucky ends up on the space shuttle issue of the comic, and, and they were like, that's a little out there. And then here we have the new season coming up, and it's Chucky in the White House. And I'm like, that's a little out there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. I like it. Also, Chris Sarandon. <laughs> what, have, what have you been watching? Jessica, do you want to go before me?
2: Sure. Okay, so mine's only tangentially spooky. Okay. So, I know. But we'll get there. There will be like a spooky aspect, but... It won't seem like it at first. So I've been watching the New Age Mickey Mouse shorts on Disney+. Plus. Okay. And they're only, like, 10 minutes long, and they're, like, funnier than they have any right to be. Like, honestly, Hmm. they're hilarious. And I was inspired, honestly, to check them out after going on Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway in Disneyland, because that ride, again, is funnier than it has any right to be. And, like, I was right. Like, they are the same chaotic and hilarious energy I was hoping for. It's also super fun because some of the episodes are in different languages. So there was one called Croissant de Triomphe, which is set in Paris and is exclusively in French. (laughs) It's so fun. There are also ones in Spanish, Italian, a few other languages. The animation is also really funny. The animators did a great job of giving the characters really exaggerated expressions like Mickey had a secret at one point and he's like puckering up his face like an internet meme. It killed me. Yeah, it it just absolutely killed me. And in other episodes, they've designed the scenery to be literal recreations of Disneyland geography. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, chef's kiss. Like I actually at one point I had to go back the first episode I watched. I rewound it because I was like, wait a second. There was this Western style town, but it panned to the town. It showed storefronts like they have in Frontierland and then a river with a steamboat, with an Good. island in the middle, off in the distance, there's a mansion. I was like, "What? Uh, holy crap! This is Disneyland."
0: Were there canoes and going it, in the river around it?
2: I there were there was a whole steamboat. There were I think there oh, may nice. have been canoes at one point. Like they definitely Good. like. I'm glad to see my old
0: attraction getting some love
2: absolutely it's so funny and so at one point they do end up in the haunted mansion and so they did have like a little spooky episode where he's trying to kick the ghosts out because Mm. you know when they're all like that kind of goofy like old-timey but with a fun modern twist so that was a a nice little thing to see nice there was also a ton more examples of replicated park scenes so just amazing i'd actually really recommend folks check this out like adults or kids because i mean they really are kid friendly but i think the adults you're gonna get a kick out of a lot of the humor that they have and just it's like each episode's trying to one-up itself that's how it feels and it just is really funny so yeah they're really quick to get through check them out
0: nice yeah we'll have to check them out before uh, disney locks us out of your account So we can't share that Yeah, please,
2: please do that. Yeah, it's already started in Canada. So I'm just canceling my account at that point. Like, watch what you can now. Like, I will be. (laughs) Well, what about you, Mike?
0: I mean, uh, does the Golden Bachelor count? Because I've been getting a lot of ads. It looks pretty horrifying. Oh,
2: my God. I literally almost did a reality TV show because I started watching the season one of Love is Blind.
0: No, stop it. (laughs) Yeah, so actually, I just recently started City Sirens from Boom. It is written by Joanne Starrer, and it is illustrated by Carrie Randolph with letters by And World Design. The story follows a 16-year-old named Layla, who is, the only way I can describe her, she is a punk rock teenager of color. And we first meet her somewhere in America outside a women's health clinic when she is confronted by a massive anti-abortion protest and it says that it is in 1987 so you know it's especially hostile towards her and so she's walking into the clinic and some douche nozzle with a megaphone tells Layla that he'll pray for her and she literally looks at him and she says go jump in front of a bus and then he does that like they like there there's something different about those words they look supercharged they're the same color as her very blue eyes and, you know, the results are pretty predictable. And then we cut to two weeks later in New York City where Layla is searching for her birth mother after being thrown up by her parents. And Layla's clearly got some powers as evidenced by how she can convince people to give her money when she sings on the street. Her baby daddy is also in the city and is apparently trying to do right by her, but she doesn't trust him because he got her into this situation. And she winds up literally bumping into... He's kind of like a trust fund artiste named Davi. And he drags her to a party where Layla is sort of by accident introduced to this magical underworld, for lack of a better description. So this is one of the best things I've read all year. It's really cool, really fresh feeling. Stare's story is really wonderful and fun. It introduces us to this larger supernatural world in a way that feels really clever and natural. But Randolph's artwork just takes the cake. It's this beautiful black and white style that's like, both hyper detailed and it feels a little raw at times and it really captures the 80s street style perfectly but then randolph also uses just a couple of colors starting out with blue and red originally to convey kind of effects and moods throughout the issues and then we start seeing green and purple in the second and third issues too like i i don't think i've ever seen anything quite like this book and the new york that they've created also gives us a lot of kind of spooky vibes I found myself thinking a lot of, like, The Lost Boys when I was reading this. Not because they're bad boy rock vampires, although there are. They're just not the main focus. It's it's more just the general vibe. It's it's like kind of like 80s punk rock horror. Sort, sort of horror. Dark fantasy, more than anything else. But, uh, yeah, like, this is fantastic. And if that sounds like anything that would be appealing to you, then I'd really recommend checking.
1: Hey, you sold me on it. I'm going to go check it out now. <laughs> I'm I, very I mean, that good at fun. sales. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you brought up The Lost Boys because that is my first published work is in The Lost Boys. And I was in the movie theater when it first came out. Oh, really? With some friends watching it. And they're in the comic shop and they pan past a rack full of comics and magazines. And right smack in the middle, is this bright yellow focus on George Perez from Fantagraphics, which was my first work in August 1985. And that's but it's so got cool. a bright yellow cover or a bright yellow logo or something. And they pan past this and it just stands right out. And I yelled out and then there's my book.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: Well, and, you know, the cool thing is like that store
0: is still around too. It's moved locations, but uh-huh. it? it's Atlantis, right? That's its name, I think.
1: Or like Atlantis Comics or something like that, but it's still in Santa Cruz. That's fantastic. I have to go there. I you know, I I, I don't really have a desire to meet the uh the, the shirtless saxophone player, but it would be great to go to that <laughs> store. <laughs> I
0: don't know. That's a slice of man beef that I'm pretty sure most people would be okay with.
1: <laughs> I think you know, he makes he makes <laughs> a living now going around to conventions, like with a saxophone and posing Good with for people's people's shirtless and oiled up.
0: I'm like, I'm here for that. I fully embrace this.
2: A 100% here for it. Here's the thing. (laughs) If you can get money, if people are going to pay you to do something that you like legitimately enjoy and it's like, I mean, that's just going out and having fun. Sounds like I'm down for it. Yeah. 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 Fully support. (laughs) Mike (laughs) knows fully support.
1: It's kind of like Jason Momoa, I guess, when he does his photo ops and so forth. He actually just tries to have fun with that and make sure that people yeah. don't walk away feeling like, Oh yeah, I just paid seventy five bucks for this guy who just stood there and did nothing, and so he interacts with people and he has fun with it. I think saxophone guy's kind of the same way not he's not as good as Jason Momoa, though
0: <laughs> I think there's a reason that Jason Momoa is everyone's future ex husband yeah. <laughs> All right, what do we say we uh, move on and start talking about Jason Goes to Hell?
1: Okay, speaking of Jasons.
0: Yeah,
2: let's transition (laughs) Jasons here.
0: Okay, I am curious, before we actually start talking about this specific movie and comic, what is everyone's familiarity with Friday the 13th overall?
1: Well, I realize that I'm the old man here. (laughs) As I often am anymore, I'm like the oldest one in the room half the time. And even though I'm only 56, I have no problem saying my age, but it's still the people I interact with in the comic book and the pop culture world are either my age or they're 20, 30 years younger than me. Mm. And it's a little strange, but I didn't see the first movie because I was a little too young when the first movie came out. But videotapes were becoming a thing by the time I was in college in 83 and so I did rent, I think the first and second movie on videotape. If people don't know what videotapes are, it's <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> it's like something the size of a book that has a movie on it, like streaming. <laughs> you put it in a, a machine and it played the movies. But yeah, so I think I saw the first two of those there. I never saw one in a theater until Jason goes to hell. Okay, It was always on video because it was much easier just to to rent them later yeah jessica
2: well i i've seen all of the films but like a really long time ago so this felt like a a really fresh watch for me since it had Mm -hmm. been so long but these types of horror movies always drew me when i was a kid selecting vhs titles speaking of that from the local bradley video (laughs) 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 and that hockey mask was and is such a popular and easy costume to put together that I'm not sure it will ever go out of fashion to be Jason or to have a new Jason film like rear its ugly head so to speak (laughs) yeah i think it's always just now it just exists within our like you know collective consciousness at this point, never to like be flushed away as hard as we try because look at this we tried with jason goes to hell (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) i you know it's funny because i was a kid in the 80s but i was too young for it but the thing is is even as a kid who like whose parents were pretty locked down on my media consumption. Like, Jason was, like, a very recognizable figure for me. Like, as it was just part of 80s pop culture. Like, my parents did buy me the NES game when I was, like, 7 or 8. And it was more, (laughs) like, upsettingly difficult than it was scary because, you know, it wasn't very good. I didn't watch any of the movies until I was in college, I think. Like, I remember working on some all-nighter papers and the movie would pop on in the background and it was, like, it was fine. I did see Jason X in the theaters because I loved terrible media, even back then. And I enjoyed Freddy versus Jason. But overall, I was never like a huge Jason fan, mainly because I, I didn't think of him as really that interesting or fun as other villains like Candyman or Freddy Krueger or Pinhead or Chucky. He was very one note for lack of Mm -hmm. a better term. But yeah, I actually like as I've been researching and writing the script for this episode, I've come to appreciate him more, especially since, you know, he is now going to be tied to my wedding day, but
1: <laughs> there is one thing that makes Jason more special than all the others. Okay. And he is the only slasher to be able to say this. He is one degree of Kevin Bacon. He is. He is one degree of Kevin Bacon because he killed Kevin Bacon,
0: right? Was Kevin Bacon in the first or the second movie? I can't remember. In the,
1: I think it was the first one. Oh, I then it totally would have been his mom. We better that. look that up. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to Google that real quick before we, Before All I right. look like an idiot. Kevin Bacon. We're getting real close
2: to Kevin Bacon. I have a friend who met Kevin Bacon, so I'm already two degrees away. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> I know.
1: I going to be in the
0: new Toxic Adventure movie, which I'm really Kevin, excited about.
1: Kevin Bacon was in Friday the 13th in 1980. Yeah.
0: Okay, so he was killed wow. by Jason's mom, but that's still real close.
1: He was in oh. the. Uh, yeah, he was. I think he it was an arrow.
0: That sounds right. Like, didn't he like push the arrow through his throat or something?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sounds um, right. Yeah, I, yeah. I think just it was, watch. I I'm totally it was wrong. The arrow. Um, hold on, just let me let me look here real quick.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna rewatch all of these.
1: Lenny major, he smoked a joint, had sex with a girl, and then yep, yep. Arm emerges sounds from like back, comes down his head. Arrow <laughs> goes up through his neck. Yeah. So yeah so, Oh that's so, okay,
2: no stop stop before the arrow. Stop before the arrow. <laughs> <laughs> banana, banana. <laughs>
1: What's our safety word for this episode? Oh, no. Right. <laughs> so so yeah, Jason is one degree away from Kevin Bacon, and no other slasher can say that. There's a, a, none of them. Candyman, Freddie, Chucky, none of them are one degree from Kevin Bacon.
0: Absolutely Amazing. fantastic. Well, yeah, so so that first movie, Friday the thirteenth, was released May 9th, 1980. It was an independent film produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham. It was written by Victor Miller, and it started a cast of largely unknown actors at the time, but it did include veteran actress Betsy Palmer as Pamela Voorhees, and a very young Kevin Bacon, as we have noted. Cunningham had worked with Wes Craven on Last House on the Left in nineteen seventy two, but he was trying to create a movie following in the footsteps of John Carpenter's Halloween. He wanted to make a horror movie that would be, in his words, a roller coaster ride. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Halloween ushered in what's known as the Golden Age of Slashers, which started in 1978 with that movie's release and lasted until 1984. The Italian giallo subgenre of murder mysteries and psychological horror flicks has been cited as early influences. And following Halloween's massive success, and when I say massive, I mean it grossed $70 million on a budget of approximately $300,000. There were apparently up to 100 similar films released over those six years, and those movies usually featured a killer stalking teenagers and featured substantial gore and nudity, and according to J.A. Kurzweil's The Slasher Movie Book, slasher films exploited dangers lurking in American institutions such as high schools, colleges, summer camps, and hospitals. So Kurzweil notes that 1980 was when the genre really exploded, and this was largely due to the financial success of Friday the 13th. It had a budget of 550000 and it grossed almost $39.7 during its theatrical run. Adjusted for inflation, that's the equivalent of almost $150 million at the box office in 2023 dollars. And on top of that, Friday the 13th is linked to the increase of violence and gore that went on to permeate the genre. So, Chris Will talks about this too.
2: The Motion Picture Association of America was also criticized for allowing the film to pass with an R rating with only a few minor cuts, a move they regretted when subsequent slash of filmmakers held up Cunningham's film as a barometer of what was acceptable in levels of violence in film. The Motion Picture Association of America, once bit, twice shy, and now sensitive to the criticism of the subgenre from everyone from film critics to women's groups, vowed to be much less lenient in the future. Something that would eventually play a part in emasculating the slasher movie and leading to its, albeit temporary, demise.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. Well, and, I mean, the MPAA is... kind of like everyone's whipping boy one of my favorite movies is a documentary called this film is not yet rated which shows just how nonsensical the rating system is so yeah if you ever want to get mad about stuff go watch that
1: it's interesting that he uses the term emasculating because there are so many books written about gender and slasher films and what those mean and what the, the killings mean and the gender parity and obviously we have this trope of the black characters always die first. Right. And if it's not the black characters, it's the character that the coded gay character dies first. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have this the women, largely semi-nude women being being slaughtered left and right. Men always getting killed after they have sex. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting parallel to the same type of things that the MPAA is saying is wrong—sex in movies, blood, nudity, gore—the things that they're saying are wrong are the same things that that, that you know Jason is killing people for. So, so right, there's right. There's yeah. this whole weird sensibility of slasher movies. They're almost always about revenge. They're almost always about people who've been bullied or picked on, and. There's a very strange gender balance there where, you know, a final girl is always the last survivor, but until then, everybody's prey. Yeah. And it's interesting that all the killers, you know, all the slasher films, including all the Jason films, gender doesn't play a role with the exception of there being a final girl. Hmm.
0: It's really thoughtful. I hadn't thought about it that way.
1: Well, yeah. So speaking
0: of Friday the 13th and the original movie, the original movie takes place at Camp Crystal Lake, which is a summer camp that has been shut down since a young boy named Jason drowned in the lake and some counselors were murdered. The camp is reopening now and we see teen counselors getting murdered by an unseen killer who, spoiler, sorry, it's like 45 years later almost, is revealed at the climax to actually be Jason's mother, Pamela Voorhees. Final girl, Alice, manages to kill Pamela and then passes out and hallucinates an undead Jason dragging her into the lake. But when she wakes up at the hospital, she's told there was no sign of the boy when authorities found her, to which she ominously replies, then he's still out there. And we get a final shot of the Tranquil Lake, which sets up the sequels, starring Jason as the killer. And from there, we pretty much got annual Friday the 13th movies for the rest of the decade. The only year that didn't get an entry was 1987. 1987 the direct sequel reveals that jason is actually still alive and he's been living as a hermit in the woods in the years following the events of the first film at the end of that movie jason's mortally wounded but not killed on screen and manages to disappear part three is when jason first wears his iconic hockey mask and is killed with an axe to the head the next movie is when jason starts the cycle of resurrection and death though the fifth movie basically has him showing up as a hallucination haunting a copycat killer The sixth movie is when a lightning strike brings him back from the grave with superhuman abilities. The seventh movie has him getting resurrected by a a telekinetic teenager. Uh, The eighth movie, there's an electric cable underwater that is the catalyst for him coming back to life before he goes on a murder spree in a cruise ship and then Manhattan before he drowns in sewers that have been flooded with toxic waste. And that's when we get the ninth movie, Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday. So, after Jason Takes Manhattan bombed the box office, New Line Cinema wound up with the film rights. And this was the first Friday the 13th under their stewardship. And New Line greenlit both a trading card series and a comic book adaptation from Topps Comics. Topps was a brand new publisher at the time, part of the Topps company, which is best known for trading cards, primarily sports cards, but some other stuff as well. Topps announced that they were forming a company in 1992 and its first comic was going to be an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula that they published that October. The editor-in-chief and associate publisher was former Marvel editor Jim Salakrup, and the imprint specialized in licensed titles, primarily based on movies and television series. So Topps put out comics based on The X-Files, Jurassic Park, and Scene of Warrior Princess. There were some original series, though, too, like Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, and then there was also the Kirbyverse, which was based on concepts and sketches by Jack Kirby. And Jason Goes to Hell was published July through September 1993, which coincided with the movie's August release date. So the series was obviously written by Andy Mangels. It was penciled by Cynthia Martin and Bobby Rubio. It had inks by Alan Nunez, colored by Evelyn Stein, lettered by Lois Buhalis, and it was edited by Jim Salakrup.
2: Man, it feels totally different when one of those people is just sitting in front of you, huh? I know, it's weird, right? <laughs> like, I can't badmouth it too much.
1: <laughs> oh, you'll hear all the stories here coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I did want to point out, jump back to when you were talking about Tots doing yeah, Bram Stoker's Dracula, because a lot of people, if they haven't seen the top, number one, I think Bram Stoker's Dracula is one of the best horror movies in in oh. horror.
0: You need to meet my fiance Sarah, because <laughs> it is literally her favorite movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My number one horror film and what I think is in one of the top five movies in history is Pan's Labyrinth. But I love Brom Stoker's Dracula. But the point I was going to make is that the comic version of it was done by Mike Mignola. That's... And it was done at the same time that he was introducing Hellboy. And so a lot of people who only know his work from Hellboy should go back and look at that Bram Stoker's Dracula book because it's it's really there's a lot of proto Hellboy stuff in there. Yeah.
0: He also, right around the same time, did a Wolverine comic called The Jungle Adventure. That's really good. But yeah, my anniversary presents to Sarah this year was a slabbed nine eight copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula number one. And then the complete series that she could just tear the polybags open and read because they're all polybagged.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that was that was one of Topps's tricks was to they would polybag their comics with a special trading card that was only yep. available with that comic. And other publishers were doing that, but those other publishers were not trading card companies. They were just right. comic companies. It didn't make sense other than it was just a way to, you know, hopefully sell that title. But with Topps, it made sense to do. They were already a trading yeah. card company. Why not make that a part of their comics as well?
0: I think X Force number one was the first one that was polybagged with a trading card. I think I remember reading that
1: recently. Could have been. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I mean, like it was a real common gimmick because at this point in the 90s, it was like the height of the speculation bubble. And so they were just really going for that. Oh, this issue is collectible. You should buy multiple copies. And here's an extra reason for you to like buy two at least so you can open one and read it and then keep the other one for, uh, you know, so you can retire off of it. Oh, I love it so much. Like, my deep and abiding love for all 90s trash gimmicks is well known at this point. (laughs)
2: I'll
1: tell you, as somebody who lived through that, who worked through that, it was, at times, it was financially good because, you know, when, when I was working on projects that had things like trading cards, I got to write the trading card, so that was a little more money, but as I did work in comics retail early on, in the late 80s, and... And as someone who was working in the industry, I remember that the, the gimmicks just didn't off, they offered something to the fan, but they offered nothing right. creative, really, for, for the creators. It just it was just kind of like it was a sales tactic that didn't do anything for us. Right?
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Well,
1: except in the cases where, you know, I got to write trading cards for stuff.
0: well thank you very much for contributing to some of my fondest childhood memories that's all i have to say (laughs) yeah Yeah, so you know the comic of jason goes to hell followed the plot of the movie pretty closely it takes place apparently a few years after jason dies in manhattan a woman returns to camp crystal lake and it turns out that jason is back how unclear but the woman (laughs) Let's him chase her. She basically lures him into a a law enforcement ambush, I think. Like, it looks like SWAT and the FBI join forces, and after they pump him full of hundreds of rounds, they call in an airstrike that literally blows Jason to smithereens. Like, it's kind of great. You see his head, like, flipping through the air and shit. (laughs) Anyway, they, they hold a huge press conference, and there's breathless media coverage detailing how Jason is finally dead, and they send his body to the morgue. The coroner gets to Jason's heart as part of, like, the medical autopsy catalog and the heart starts beating and then he is somehow compelled to eat the damn thing which then causes jason to possess him and we know that jason is possessing people because anytime throughout the story where he is possessing someone and we see the reflection of the body it is showing jason himself instead of the person that he is wearing as a suit and i actually thought that was kind of a cool effect mm-hmm. jason murders another coroner and then two guards one of whom in the movie is played by kane hotter who is the actor who played jason himself. And he then escapes to return to Camp Crystal Lake. Meanwhile, there is a TV interview between a sleazy kind of like late night news personality named Robert Campbell and Creighton Duke, who is, he's like a weird sort of like flamboyant bounty hunter. Like I, I kind of want to describe his affect as like a more serious and sinister version of Dog the Bounty Hunter, for lack of a better way of describing him. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah uh creighton states that there is something supernatural about jason but he'll capture and kill him for the price of a hundred thousand dollars and then we get an extended scene at a diner in jason's hometown where they are selling jason themed burgers and fries and in the movie we get an extended cameo by one leslie jordan who is one of my favorite actors ever and yeah. it's really funny watching him play like a womanizer grease cook i'm like oh, this is perfect <laughs> okay.
1: it was funny at the time i did not know leslie jordan at all other than just you know having seen him in a couple of things I knew right. nothing about him i didn't know he was this hilariously funny little queen and then later of course will and grace he really blossomed yeah. I, I didn't remember that i had written leslie jordan stuff <laughs> until recently and then i was like holy cow i i wrote leslie jordan's death scene that's, that's cool. so good And it's a great death scene. It's one of
0: the better ones in the movie and in the comic. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it turns out that Jason's half sister, Diana works at the diner and she is dating Sheriff Landis, who seems to be a decent enough dude. She waits on Creighton Duke himself, who says that he needs her help killing Jason. She refuses and kicks him out. And then it turns out that Diana has a daughter named Jessica, not with a K, unfortunately. Shame. I know. And she has (laughs) a kid with her ex named Steven who is still in town and is pining after her. Diana ominously tells Stephen to come by her place that night so she can tell him something important about their family, and it might help him getting Jessica back. And then after that, we see Jason go after one of the sheriff's deputies. He murders the guy's mistress and then kidnaps the deputy himself so that he can possess the body as the coroner's meat suit is starting to fall apart. And later that night, Diana is at her house and... The possessed deputy attacks her and tries to possess her while basically he does it by trying to kiss her with this weird kind of demonic tongue. But Stephen arrives and interrupts things. Jason manages to mortally wound Diana and escape, leaving Stephen to get arrested by Sheriff Landis as he arrives on the scene immediately afterwards. And then issue two begins with Stephen in jail and we cut to Diana's home where her daughter Jessica arrives with her baby Stephanie. Family friend Vicky, who is also a waitress at the same diner as Diana, is at the house trying to clean up the blood. And it's revealed Stephen didn't know Jessica was pregnant when she left town. Jessica goes to the police station and Stephen sees her and for the first time his daughter. But he's led away to the cells before he can do anything. And it turns out Jessica is now dating that TV bag, Robert Campbell. And then the sheriff is alerted to the fact that Creighton Duke is in the morgue because Diana's body is missing. So Duke goes into the cell next to Stephen. And Vicky agrees to watch the baby for Jessica. And then we cut to this bizarre scene in which Creighton... Tell Stephen what's going on that Jason is now a spirit who is body hopping, but that the bodies will rot until he can possess someone who's related to, and then he'll be reborn with all of his powers when he does that. And the only way to kill Jason is to destroy his heart, but the only person who can do so is a relative, which means that it has to be Jessica now. And in between each of these facts getting spilled, he says Stephen has to pay a price and then he breaks his fingers. Why? Never explained. It's like, <laughs> it's very weird. it,
1: it it's it, Creighton Duke is a bit of a sadist. I'll just say that.
0: Okay. <laughs> Steven manages to then get one over his friend, Randy, who is also a deputy and then escapes the jail and heads to the diner where Vicky has his baby. Ward, whose mother runs the diner, gives Steven his car keys and Steven goes to the Voorhees house where he hides in a closet and overhears Robert Campbell on the phone. It turns out Campbell is dating Jessica to work an angle for his show. And then he's basically trying to jazz up ratings by doing a special about Jason. And he is also the one who actually stole Diana's body from the morgue, which is now sitting in the closet with Steven. It's kind of a great scene with this, like, body on top of him.
2: Which is next fucking level, too, to be like, oh, yeah, no, to do my job, I need to steal this body from the morgue.
0: Yeah, Geraldo's got nothing on me. right? Gosh
2: darn. Shoot, I am doing my jobs wrong. Like, that guy is giving 110%.
0: I know, man. If I knew body snatching was a legit career option for media,
1: Woo! we were we were riffing on when they wrote the movie, and I was working on the comic. We were we were riffing on people like Jerry Springer, Maury Povich, et cetera. Uh, those those uh, even a little bit of Geraldo, those late night hosts who were like would do anything for their story, including right. you know stealing bodies from morgues. And, <laughs> you know so forth uh with no cameras around um because it was important that they get the story but somehow they were doing it without a cameraman i don't know right (laughs) (laughs) it made it made as much sense as you know some of the other stuff
0: (laughs) i love it it's great (laughs) yeah so immediately after we hear this jason kind of comes stomping into the house and he winds up possessing campbell's body and we get to a watch the process where that demonic tongue enters into Campbell's body and it's, it's like a really gross French kiss and then we see Ooh. the deputy that he's <laughs> been possessing basically just melt apart at the seams and it's really yeah. it's a really cool scene I really liked it a lot like Sarah it's and I were epic. just like If there were more scenes like this in the movie, we would actually probably rewatch this.
1: Right. (laughs) Are you saying the comic was better than the movie? Is that what you're you're implying? Yes.
0: Yes, we are. I mean, but we will. But we will get there. We will get there. Like, I have a whole section of the script set up for that. Okay. After that, we cut to Jessica at her mom's house where Jason ambushes her and her boyfriend's body. Steven comes to her rescue, but she doesn't realize what's going on and doesn't believe Steven when he tells her. And they argue about how she didn't tell him about the baby. She manages to kick him out of the car and drive to the sheriff's office. Randy then catches up with Steven, who convinces his friend to arrest him and take him back to jail because Jessica is in danger. And then shortly after that, Jason plods into the department and just sort of starts murdering everyone he comes across in slow motion. And Steven and Randy arrive just in time for Steven to steal Randy's gun and shoot Jason in the head. To be continued. And finally, we get to issue three which picks up immediately after this. Steven and Jessica leave the police station to get to their baby, only for Jason to reawaken and continue murdering cops. Creighton Duke takes advantage of the chaos and escapes his jail cell. Jason follows Jessica and Steven to the diner, where he battles the shop's owners and Vicky, all of whom he kills. Side note, this is when Leslie Jordan gets shoved into a deep fryer. It's a great death. Deep fried Leslie Jordan. Oh, man. It's special of the
1: day is Southern deep fried gay man. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then in, in
0: the movie, it is revealed that Creighton took the baby and left a note telling Jessica to meet him at the Voorhees house alone. We don't get that note in the comic. I'm guessing they cut that out for like, you know, it's just kind of like it was extra space that they couldn't afford it because of the page count. And then Jessica comes to the house. Regardless, Duke gives Jessica the baby back while telling her that they can kill Jason tonight. And it has to be with a knife that basically turns into a medieval dagger when she touches it. It doesn't fit really with the whole Jason mythology, but all of a sudden she's given this the small knife that transforms into what's almost a short sword. And then a police officer who we only see from behind enters the diner only for Jason to body hop into him back at the house. Duke falls through the floor just as Sheriff Landis and Randy arrive. Landis is accidentally killed with the dagger, but it's revealed that Jason is actually possessing Randy. And then he tries to possess the baby Stephanie, only for Stephen to kill the man with a machete, which he took from the diner. So I don't know why they had a machete sitting on the wall, but OK.
1: <laughs> they had a machete sitting on the wall because that was the, the diner's theme was was that it was, uh, you know, they were serving Jason burgers. That's something. right. So that the, actually makes a lot of sense. So the theme like, of the restaurant was actually. was Jason, you know, so the first thing, this. they would have a machete. There you I'm, go. I'm There's less grumpy nice
0: about this detail. now. Thank you very much.
2: See, this is why we have the creators on to talk, right? But, there you go. You know, clarify these things for us. Like I was sitting
0: there, and I'm like, "What the fuck? Why is a machete in a diner?" No, no, it makes sense. I love it. Right.
2: Listen, it's just quirky decor. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like putting a colander on the wall, right? Yeah, right?
0: It's, yeah. it's a murder themed <laughs> version Same of the thing? Hard Rock Cafe. It's fine. Right. Right. <laughs> At this point, Jason's heart, which is the creepy tongue that we've been seeing throughout the story, it sounds like a full-fledged tiny demon. And it crawls out of Randy's neck and it manages to, after, you know, a lot of false starts, climb into Diana's body, which then allows Jason to be reborn in his original body, fully clothed and masked. He jumps through the floor in kind of this burst of light. Duke attacks Jason and is killed. In fact, it's much more definitive in the comic that he is killed than it is in the movie. In the movie, it just, it sounds like he maybe had his back broken or something. Steven distracts Jason while Jessica gets her magical dagger back, and then she stabs her uncle in the chest. There is a big light show. Demona figures burst out of the ground and pull Jason into hell. Jason almost pulls Steven down with him, but Jessica pulls him free. Steven and Jessica then reconcile and walk off into the sunrise with their baby. And then we, we hear Freddy Krueger laugh, see his gloved hand burst through the earth, and it pulls Jason's mask down into hell. End scene. Uh, so everyone has watched the movie. How did you feel about it in the grand scheme of the Friday the 13th canon? I'm curious.
1: Friday the 13th canon is is a little all over the place. Unlike, yes. unlike some of the others... Can confirm. Yeah. Unlike some of the other the other slashers it was you know it wasn't even all one person in in all the movies and there's there's the 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 ability of jason to kind of possess people or to control people or to magically come back it it really was there all through it so so nothing in this film um was really terribly surprising until we got to the to the demon heart uh creature creature thing so it was a way for Adam Marcus to explain kind of how did Jason get these, get these powers. And there, there's a weird thing that happens when you have these franchise movies that go on for a while. Because they've built up so much mythology with their characters, it becomes more and more necessary to explain inconsistencies as you mm-hmm. go along because the fans start questioning it well why did this happen well why did this happen Et cetera. <laughs> and uh you know the same thing happened with with uh freddie in uh freddie's dead the final nightmare where suddenly it wasn't just freddie freddie was powered by demons and yeah you know it, it 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 was a way for them to explain okay how does freddie have all these powers well this is why it was you know the the equivalent of of the radioactive spider biting Peter Parker or the radioactive sludge hitting Daredevil or mm-hmm. or cosmic rays with fantastic four. It was a way to explain how they got these powers. So saying that Jason's powers came through his bloodline, but they were really demonic in nature, and that so they allowed him to transform or to move from body to body or or whatever and could only be killed by his bloodline. It all made sense in the in the we have to explain it type of way. If you were watching this for the very first time and you would never seen a Friday the Thirteenth movie, it wouldn't make any sense really at all. But if you're if you're a hardcore fan and you're looking at it and you and you look at it in the perspective of he what he was trying to do was explain it all and set up the ending, which really was because Newline was now the owner. Uh, that was really the the impetus was to set up the ending there for Freddy versus Chase. How did you feel about it, Jessica?
2: Like it was f- it was fine. Like it, I mean, <laughs> honestly, it made me laugh more than anything. <laughs> it was an interesting turn about you know the familial ties, having to get involved, all of that. Um, I really could have done without the use of Diana's body to like rebirth him without like consent that was a little intense it kind of gave me the ick but i mean i think all in all like i mean i i mean i had a good time watching it i mean ultimately that's what we want out of stuff right
0: (laughs) yeah i mean like i didn't hate it like you know sarah and i had moments where we were like man if we got more of this like you know the sheriff's deputy melting apart and stuff like that that would have been great i was weirdly underwhelmed by it like i wasn't really a big fan of how they tried to end the whole deep occult narrative to jason's nature with prophecies and magical weapons it just it didn't It didn't work for me, and I'll talk about, I think, why it didn't work later on, but it also felt like a PG or a PG-13 movie these days because most of the kills happen off camera, and it's also filmed so dark to the point where you can't really see anything. Like, in the movie, you actually don't get a good look at what that demonic heart looks like when it's scurrying around. Mm -hmm. Like, you can see it in the comic book, but you can't see it in the movie. It's just this weird kind of nebulous shape with arms. It's like,
1: all right. That, that's a really interesting point to make, because what we worked from, me and the, the art team, what we worked from was uh, not only the script, but we had an early cut of the film. And oh, okay. it wasn't complete, number one. Some of the special effects weren't complete. And as I recall, it was not all the lighting was, you know, it, because they, they film a lot of scenes night for day, where, or day for right. night. Where, where they do night. the
0: blue lens, yeah. yeah.
1: they'll they'll film it in daylight, but then they'll darken the scene so that it looks darker. And especially when you're doing special effects, a lot of that done um, so that they can hide the puppeteer, or they can hide the the strings, or they can hide. You know, when you're doing practical effects, you have to you have to find ways to hide that because CGI wasn't a thing at that point, so they they couldn't CGI it. They, and it was all practical, and so the darkness in the film was kind of necessary but what we were working from in the comic we didn't know how dark or light it was going to be and we didn't know how much blood the mpaa was going to allow or not allow and so it was really a choice on my part to say let's make this as bloody as we can or let's make this as creepy as we can because (laughs) this is this is where it goes in the in the cut that we saw or this is where it goes in the script you know some of those scenes we may not have ever seen, but in the script it says he dies, you know, dramatically. And I'm like, that's up to me to figure out what that is and to tell the artist what to draw. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing because not everybody who adapts a film comic gets the kind of access that we had. Many people only get the script and they get five stills or something like that. They have right. to kind of imagine it from there. Some people might get to see an early cut, but they have to go to the, to the studio to see it, and then they never see it. You know, they don't have access to it. We actually had a videotape so that we could we could look at this stuff and kind of figure it out.
0: I was going to say, they just sent you a streaming copy, right? Like- yeah,
1: yeah. Ah. But, but even so, it wasn't finished. And so if you watch the film and you look at the comic, there are scenes that are in the film that aren't in the comic. Because they added those in later during reshoots. Okay. They were like, "Oh, we need a we need a a scene of teenagers having sex and and uh, going going to the camp." That wasn't that wasn't in the script. That wasn't in. I actually thought the comic was stronger for
0: not including that because I thought I thought it was just kind of this weird moment where I'm like, whatever, I guess they got to murder some kids every ten minutes or something. But right, right,
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that was absolutely it. They they added stuff in where the studio was like oh we need some more this we need some more of that let's murder some more kids yeah of course because it's the mpaa is involved they they're like take out this blood darken this scene etc we didn't have that in the comic and i'll talk later about like one of my favorite things in there where um we got to do something that they didn't get to do on film okay so
0: on that note what is everyone's favorite kill in the movie i'm curious Jessica, you go first.
2: I'll go first. Totally. I I was a huge fan of the surprise probe at the beginning.
1: That, that was, was a good. nice
2: touch. It was pretty good. I but the you know to your point earlier, Mike, the melting deputy. <laughs> what a great effect for its time. I mean, they just spent so much time. They were getting the angles going, y'all. It was it was well done. I like it. Was it. serving
0: <laughs> Michael Rooker in uh, Slither from two thousand five. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. long before that though I mean this is before uh, uh, what's the, uh, the what's the one that had the Bill and Ted actor and everybody melt together society Yeah. oh so,
0: I don't think I've seen that one
1: uh, so this is long before society and this is uh, there wasn't a lot of like grotesque meldy body horror stuff but I loved the scene and the thing or the scenes yeah. and the thing where there was a huge amount of body horror and 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 characters were melting and transforming and so forth. So when when we got to do that, that was great fun because I could just kind of go like, Ooh. and and I look at that page now and there's like 17 different sound effects that go with it, you know. Yep. And and when I when I'm writing a script, I actually sit there and I go, okay, what would the sound of a melting r or a melting head smashing into a wall sound like? I'm like you know and i'm
0: like
1: oh how do you spell smorch
0: you know okay.
1: and so i'm sitting there and i'm kind of like making these vocal sounds and then trying to figure out how to spell them and then how many vowels do you put in because how long do you want that sound to be you know if somebody's sliding across the floor then you put like a whole bunch of vowels in but if it's a quick kill like like jason slammed somebody head into the wall that it might be a big, you know, and then I've got to be like, okay, so there's only two vowels and whatever sounds like, <laughs> you know. Oh my god! And and it's a weird thing. So if you look at this comic with that in mind, and you think, oh, somebody had to write those sound effects, <laughs> you know, and that was me. But you have to figure out what do those kills sound like, and I don't have a sound design to work with. I don't have you know somebody stabbing a watermelon, which is a lot of how they make those sounds. Is that they'll They'll take watermelons and they'll, like, hit them with hammers or stab them or something. I didn't have that. I had to spell it out. You just
2: answered so many questions for me (laughs) because I always wondered, like, literally, I've always wondered, like, who comes up with the onomatopoeias to, like, really describe what's happening in these scenes? Like, I mean, I know it's the writers, but it's like, how, how, like, how?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I want to hear your favorite, though, Mike, before I tell you all mine to see if anybody liked mine better (laughs) i liked
0: the one where jason goes after the adulterous deputy and then kills his girlfriend because it's implied in the movie that he decapitated her by slamming the car door shut as she was like getting
1: in Uh uh-huh
2: but also like who gets into a car like that like she was like oh let me (laughs) oh (laughs) let me just stand here like Like okay, you know what? You know, you're kind of asking to be like decapitated by a door. I feel like that's how you get into a car, (laughs) I guess. Not to not to victim blame here.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Don't you heard
2: it here first, folks?
0: (laughs) Jessica, victim blaming the murder victims. That's it.
2: Oh my gosh, maybe I am a monster. I don't know.
1: So so there's there's a page in issue three, and this is my favorite kill because it happens right after Leslie Jordan gets deep fried. Where his oh, his yeah. wife goes after uh, she doesn't know it's Jason she just thinks it's uh. the, it's the guy she goes after Jason and he's killing Leslie Jordan her husband and she grabs a big big ass knife and then stabs yep. the guy with it and I would have to go back and look directly at the script but in the script there was a there was a string of expletives that she said. And then yes. and then when I wrote the thing, I added to it. Oh and, good. And then you go back and you watch the scene, and she's like, she's like, damn you you. And then he likes he, he like, like hits hits her face and collapses her face in. It's a and great yeah. visual. It's like a that great, is also yeah. up there. It's a great visual, but there's there's no all the dialogue there has been cut. So if mm-hmm. you read if you read the comic dialogue in issue three, First, she says, you motherfucker. And then she says, get away from him, you piece of shit, skull-faced, yellow douchebag, you stupid Uh shit-sucking, kid-killing, yellow pussy, son of a bitch. (laughs) Fuck you. And then he smashes her face up.
2: It's so good. It's so good. I thought that seemed added. I was like, they didn't say all of this in the the movie.
1: Well, so here's the thing. Years later, I was working for Marvel Comics, and my editor for some reason, looked at my, my CV and he's like, oh, you wrote the Jason goes to hell comic. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, we have a page from that up in our office. And I'm like, why do you have a page of that up in your office? And he said, because it was the filthiest filthiest comic any of us had ever seen the panel where you've got the cook trying to kill the guy and he, and he smashes her face in. And he said, he said the amount of swearing in that panel was so immense, none of us could believe it actually saw print. And
0: that's so, good. And,
1: and so they had kiss, they had pinned it to the bulletin board at Marvel Comics as an example of the filthiest comic ever published. And I I thought, well, that's something. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh my that's, gosh! Wow. So yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm a little proud of that. That that there should be for a while. I was at, at Marvel. I you know, had the filthiest comic ever published. I think there's worse out there, but in oh, yeah. terms, in terms of strings of swear words, it's uh, there, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah,
2: it was certainly very creative. I have to yeah. say that I enjoyed it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's my favorite you kill, know, just because that was you know, th- there's there's no way in any project I've ever written that that scene could have been written uh, except for that scene. It's just, it's just too much. Well, that leads us into my next question, which is where were you in your
0: comics writing career and how did you get assigned to write this book?
1: Okay. So I had, I started out my comic career writing for fan magazines and I shouldn't have to explain what magazines are to people. They still exist. (laughs) But fan magazines used to be the only way that people could, could look things up or find out about things historically or read interviews with people and so forth. They used to have to read it in a magazine, which is published biweekly or monthly or something like that. So I started my career doing that, and I interviewed a lot of editors and writers and artists in the comic field and got to know them. And through that kind of built up both a reputation as somebody who was good and could meet deadlines, but also somebody who had connections. And so when I wanted to start my comic career, it was a little bit easier for me than if, mm. if i just come in cold i started working first with blackthorne was one of the the first people i worked for and i was going to do a nightmare on elm street comic for them and i was going to work on the fifth issue of nightmare on elm street for marvel and then marvel canceled it with issue two Blackthorn Blackthorn went out of business
0: we've talked about that actually yeah. Uh, oh, good! That, yeah. That yeah, that was when we talked about Kid Cannibal and Eternity, which then led us to Malibu Comics.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to Innovation, and Innovation had a had had a great success with their Anne Rice books. They were adapting mm-hmm. Vampire Love Stat and other Anne Rice books, and they they also had gotten the license to Lost in Space, and
0: which so, we are planning to talk about at some point. Oh, good,
1: good. So I went to And we to talked the, about
0: uh, Beauty and the Beast as well for a minute. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I went to Innovation and I said, hey, I was going to be working on Nightmare on Elm Street. I was, would you guys be interested in this? Because now I had an in with the Nightmare on Elm Street people. Mm-hmm. So I ended up from there using my Hollywood connections. Remember, intersection of Comics Way and Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> um, I used my Hollywood connections to to get to the correct licensing people. And so I ended up working for innovation, licensing comics for them, you know, getting them things like Nightmare on Elm Street and Child's Play, which I ended up writing, Quantum Leap, I got them Dark Shadows. Marvel was trying to get Dark Shadows and I got it for Innovation oh, instead. Marvel and Dark Horse and there were five companies going for Dark Shadows and I was the one who got it. Wild. So I used nice. to get I used to get licenses for innovation, then occasionally write write those series for them. And when Tox got the Jason Goes to Hell license, Jim Salica called me up and said, Hey, we've got this. You've already written Freddy and Chucky. Do you want to write Jason as well? And I was like, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So I came on and did that. And that eventually led to me writing a magazine called Star Wars Galaxy. And I said to Jim, I'd love to write something for Star Wars Galaxy. Can Can I write something, please? and he says well do you know anything about boba fett and i i was like that's my favorite character i know everything about it so as I,
0: evidenced by the giant statue right behind you
1: yeah yeah you
2: say yeah. i've been staring at that this
1: whole time the, just those, like those drooling. of you who ha, who, ha, who can't see if this is audio i have a, a life-size statue of boba fett in here and my very first tattoo was the oh, the, oh nice like the Mandalorian. That. Yeah, this is the the Mandalorian the skull of the uh the creature from from uh the Mandalorian. Uh, and I and I've had that since before either of you were born. <laughs> I'm OG. I'm OG on this. I got that in 95, I think.
2: Oh, that's not before we were born.
1: Oh, really? Okay, good. No, I like, appreciate I that. appreciate it, but
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> Ooh, yeah.
0: No, no, I am turning 42 next week. Oh, well. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm 37, yeah. Okay, so
1: you were, you were a child, you were a child then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I did an article for Top Star Wars Galaxy Magazine, and then Lucasfilm called up and asked for my number and got it, and then they offered me my first book contract, Star Wars you Simple nice. Good Characters.
0: I had that as a kid.
1: Good. <laughs> i bought that at the smithsonian uh, well oh. that's fantastic um, because
0: they were selling it as part of their star wars exhibit if you remember
1: yeah yeah uh that's fantastic the weirdest place i've seen that book is a chiropractor's office Ooh, i i went into cool. this this 85 year old chi- who was doing chiropractic and had been recommended to me and i look at his bookshelf and there's like six books one of them being mine and i thought well that's that's a an interesting sign. Apparently, I should be here. So that's how I got involved with Tops was uh, through innovation and through my work in licensing. They they just kind of said, "Hey, you seem like you'd be right for this." And so then I got to do. Jason goes to hell. You know, in those days, it was ju- the internet was just starting at that point. So spoilers were not really a thing. I had to sit on that secret that Freddie was going to be in the end of the movie i had i had i had to protect that secret with my life because because i knew that was the biggest thing in the movie and i knew that once the movie came out that would be what everybody was talking about you know and yet i knew it a year ahead of time and had to just keep my mouth shut the whole time you know that everything was going to lead up to that scene So on that note, it's, you know, it's been
0: noted that the comic has some differences from the movie as it was based on, as you said, both the shooting script and then like an early cut. I clocked some small things like, you know, Duke's fee was $100,000 in the comic as opposed to $500,000 in the movie. Mm -hmm. In the comic, Vicky has a moment where she talks to her boyfriend before taking the baby to work and then he gets killed by Jason. Are there any changes that you wish you could have included in the comic or wish that they hadn't been cut from the movie?
1: Not, I don't think there's anything that I regret not being able to do because most of what didn't end up in the comic was kind of what I would call filler scenes. And there there was nothing that moved the narrative along in those scenes. And most of them were actually done as reshoots and then inserted in when they did their second cut of the film. And often it was just things like, Oh, let's explain this a little more. You know, let's have the baby. Why does she take the baby to work or not? Let's explain these type of things. You know, the teenagers having sex thing we talked about already, where it was like, we need some more kills and we need some teenagers. And so let's, let's put a whole scene in here that doesn't make any sense, but we'll just put it mm-hmm. in here. The thing that I was happiest with is, is how much we got to do in the comic that didn't end up on film. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the way it is with uh, I've adapted four films: Child's Play two and three, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and this one. And all of them have scenes that didn't make it into the theaters. And it's one of the fun things about writing, you, you know, you're trying to condense what is is a ninety minute movie into three twenty two page issues. So you've got sixty six pages to do a 90-minute move. And when you've got something that's got action and bloody kills, that on top of it, like you want to feature those, so it's not as easy as just saying, well, a page and a half per minute. You know, you you can't break it down like that. You've really got to look at how are you going to pace it so that you have your ending breaks per issue, and then how are you going to pace it so that you have enough time to... You have the the melting detective, uh, you know, a whole page to melt versus somebody else only gets a panel to, to, to die in. But I will say that each of those adaptations, the most special part to me was the fact that there are things in there that aren't on film, mm. and or that people have never seen on film, and that's a little bit of I think magic of, of a comic adaptation where it can expand upon the experience. It's not just, here's the experience. It's not a photo novel, which is what right. they used to do where they would take you know screen captures, basically, and the direct dialogue, and there it would be. That isn't what this is. This is an actual, we, myself and the artists, are, are adapting, we are repurposing. Does that make sense?
2: <laughs> it does, absolutely, okay. absolutely. If you had the option, would you write another Jason comic? Is there a story you'd like to tell?
1: I would love to. The, the The interesting aspect of Jason versus the others is that there is some tragedy to his past. And yet there is also clearly a supernatural element to him. And mm-hmm. so, so if I were writing something with Jason, I, I think that perhaps doing something that gets into his head sees the world through his view might be a really interesting way to do something that would be hard to do on film, but might be able to be done in a comic
0: Hmm.
1: because I would imagine what he sees is, is perhaps very different from what the reality is. And I'm not saying that he hallucinates people with big slabs of meat or something like that, but, (laughs) but you know, does he, like you know, they say the dogs see in black and white. Does he see things the way that we do? Right. With both all the things that have happened to him physically and the mystical elements of whatever is keeps reviving him. Mm. Right. You know, and I
2: think the introspection would be really interesting as well.
1: Yeah, it's not that I want to say, oh, let's let's have Jason talk and explain everything. But just seeing some things from his perspective might be a really fascinating way to understand him and a new way to show what he's doing. It would be a fascinating way to write, Chase.
0: Agreed.
2: Yeah. And speaking of other horror franchises, you have worked on quite a few of them, as we've already (laughs) discussed, which is so what what a cool opportunity to be involved in such cool you know, just horror spaces. Is there a horror franchise that you haven't worked on that you would just love to get your hands on?
1: Yeah. Hellraiser. Hellraiser was the one that got away. I was I was oh, act- man. I was <laughs> actively talking with Marvel and had artists lined up that, that I was going to work with on some stories for Hellraiser when when Marvel Epic had it. And then it just it just never happened. And I still regret that because I adore Clyde Barker's world and his imagination. The world of Nightbreed, the world of Hellraiser just are fantastic. So I would love, love, love to work on a Clyde Barker property. I'm an enormous Stephen King fan. A constant reader, as we're called. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would love to work on something there. But, you know, it's, it's weird whenever they have done long form stuff with stephen king like the dead zone or haven mm-hmm. or some of those things where they take the initial story and then they split off mr mercedes sometimes it really really works like i thought mr mercedes was 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 excellent all the way through and i actually thought the uh, jerusalem slot the, the new one they just did was was really well done I would love to work on something along those lines where it's taking those elements and kind of going from there. One of the carries, they kind of introduced the concept that there were other powered teenagers and was the government really, you know, trying to put, it was kind of like, was the government putting together their version of the X-Men with, with that? Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, the experiments that King has done on kids and the government in several of his books That would be kind of a fascinating thing to do to kind of link some of those things together. So yeah, I'd love to work on some Clyde Barker stuff. I'd love to work on some Stephen King stuff. I love Candyman. I did get to a really weird crossover that that some people caught and some people didn't, which was in a Deep Space Nine book that I wrote. It was Mission Gamma. And in it, Tyranitar, who is a Jem'Hadar soldier, Goes on to Quark's holodeck to fight, and he's he's like the most powerful soldier there, and so he wants something that will challenge him. So he has the holodeck create what eventually is revealed as a xenomorph, and I it's <laughs> called it's called a xenomorph in the book, but not until right towards the end of the scene. But it's clearly it's an alien from the aliens franchise and. And as you're reading it, and I've had people go, was that supposed to be an alien and I'm like, okay. yep, yep. Bingo. There it is right on the nose. <laughs> and, you know, cause I described the, the segmented tail and the teeth that shoot out and the acid blood and the, you know, the face hugger and, and all this stuff, but I describe it in ways that are real to star Trek, not real to fans knowledge of the alien movies. So the closest I get to fans' knowledge of the Alien movies, I don't call it a facehugger. It's it's a creature that comes out of the egg, but at the end, I finally do call it a xenomorph, which is in the Aliens universe what they're called. And so, if you hadn't gotten it by that point, and you know what a xenomorph is, there it is. And so, so I got Aliens versus Star Trek. You know, that was my that was my one like little horror thing that people didn't <laughs> get.
0: I mean, oh, th- this shame. is basically all of my love languages. We're talking Hellraiser <laughs> comics. We're talking Star Trek. We're talking aliens. I mean, don't make it weird, but I kind of love you right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're, you're getting married to someone else, and I'm already married. So, you know, sorry, but who
2: we are safe man man the tension dodged a bullet i was like i almost left i was ah. like i don't i don't need to be here
1: <laughs> no you absolutely Fair. need to be here you're the final girl right
2: <laughs> man someone someone will eventually write me as the final girl right. there's been threats
0: <laughs> Yeah, no, we have a deep and abiding love for Hellraiser
1: on the show. I had two stories that I really that I really was excited about. I think they were the two that were going to go. One was The Origin of the Chatterer. And that involved he was as old I don't remember if it was it was in Salem, but he was as old as basically the Salem witch trials. Like he was he oh, was cool. from that era. So he's really old. And then I had another story that was set, I forget which tribe it was, but the whole story was Native American. And it was pre-colonial Native American. They find the puzzle box, or they come into possession of the puzzle box. And so it was kind of like, how does that, at that point in time, how how would they explain that? What would it mean to them? And so forth. And so I was really trying to do something that was an unusual take on it—not just a, a modern-day people want the puzzle box. It was—it was more like, how do you explain this? How do people who have, you know, two spirits and who have tribal gods and who have all these elements, how do, how would they look at the the cenobites and the cenobite world? I was really excited to do those two stories, and then they just never happened. Mm.
0: I'm sorry they didn't get to write for Hellraiser. Like, because yeah. I it sounds like a story that I would have loved.
2: Did anything cool happen when the book was released?
1: Yeah, actually, it was released around the time Comic Con International. Okay. And I got to do an autograph signing with Adam Marcus, the writer director, and Kane Hodder. And nice. boy, you know, he's a he's a big guy, number one. <laughs> you know. He's a big guy. Uh, I mean, I'm six foot and I'm not small, but he's a big, big guy. And so it's weird. Back then, an autograph signing with the actors, there wasn't what it is now. Number Mm -hmm. one, we were giving away photos to anybody who walked up, anybody who stood in line. And it was done as a publicity thing to publicize the movie, to publicize the comic. And they treated, this is a very particular point in time where the film people treated the comic book people with respect and equality Mm -hmm. that only lasted a couple of years and it doesn't happen anymore. And it never happened before that. But that period in the, in the early nineties to the mid nineties, there was this, and that was when I was involved with a, a lot of the licensing, there was a respect that was being done between companies who were licensing their projects and comic companies and their creators. And I've, I have seen, historically, I've seen letters from TV show people who are working on a comic book-based property, and they're like, how the hell do we get these DC Comics people to stop bothering us uh, you know, and pitching us stuff? We don't want anything to do with them. How do we get them off our backs? And that was how they treated it in the 70s and 80s and 60s and 50s and so forth. Because licensed comics have been around since comics began. Right. But it used to be just like, oh God, how do we deal with these comics people? They're, they're the bastard stepchildren. And then for this very short period of time in the 90s, we were equals. And then what it's become is that, that the film companies now look at it as a revenue stream. And they look at it in that manner as opposed to a part of the package. And so they've stopped working with creators in the same way they did in the nineties. Now they'll have their movie people signing, but they won't have the comic book people anywhere near them. Uh, they don't let people mm-hmm. talk to each other. Like now, if you, if you adapt something, you don't get to talk to the screenwriter. You're lucky if you get the script and you're dealing only with the licensing people and. You know, so forth. So it was a very, very different time. And that period of time was when I did Jason Goes to Hell and I got to do a signing with Kate Hodder and Adam Marcus. And and what fun. I had done signings before with the cast of Freddy's Dead and Child's Play 3. And they were all teenagers. And that was chaos. That was <laughs> chaos. Chaos, chaos. They they grew into adults later who were much more well-behaved. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Doing a siding with the teenage stars of Freddy's Dad and Child's Play 3 was just utter chaos. Doing it with Kane Hodder and Adam Marcus was just sheer fun because it was just like we were all bros in, you know, in Jason-hood. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn our attention back to Jason
0: because Mm -hmm. this series is notable because it is jason's first official appearance in comics there was one other comic before this samurai funnies number two but that was unlicensed and unofficial and it's also noted that satan six number four which was also published by tops at the same time has jason show up for a couple of pages as a cameo but jason's goes to hell seems to be the canonically accepted debut Mm -hmm. and that said, this is far from Jason's last comic incarnation. So in 95, tops published Jason versus Leatherface, which is a non-canonical crossover between Friday the 13th and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Basically, Jason stows away on a train, winds up in Texas, and gets adopted by Leatherface's family until a series of misunderstandings turn them into enemies. It's like weirdly cute and kind of funny. Topps Comics itself wasn't long for this world, seeing as how it got started right at the height of the speculation bubble, and it wound up folding in 98. And then after that, Avatar wound up with the comic book rights, publishing a one-shot special issue, a couple of miniseries tied into the Jason X film, and then one more one-shot. And immediately after the rights with Avatar expired, Wildstorm snapped him up, and they wound up putting out six different Friday the 13th comics between 2007 and 2008. And then starting in 2009, DC and Dynamite, co-published freddy versus jason versus ash and a sequel series and then since then we haven't gotten any friday the 13th comics and likewise the friday the 13th movies have had a couple of comeback attempts since jason goes to hell but none of them have really fully resurrected the franchise we got jason x in 2002 which is i mean it's jason in space and it's both very dumb and very fun i have an immense (laughs) soft spot for that movie 2003's freddy versus jason was the biggest box office hit of the 12 movies in the franchise. A sequel was apparently planned, but it never materialized. And then in 2009, we had the most recent Friday the 13th movie. It was basically a reboot, and while it grossed almost $100 million at the box office and a sequel was announced, Warner Brothers scrapped the plans for it before they relinquished the rights to Paramount. Another movie was supposedly in the works at Paramount, but that never came to be before New Line got the rights back. And then there was this long-lasting lawsuit over the rights filed by victor miller who wrote the original movie that lawsuit really kind of ground development of the friday the 13th projects to a halt including it basically killed development on friday the 13th the game which gun media was working on until that point but miller won the domestic rights from seanis cunningham in 2021 and it sounds like we've gotten more projects in the works now but who knows so maybe we'll get some more tie-in comics in the next few years but that's kind of the end of Jason's story for now. Like, we know that he'll come back at some point.
2: Unless a Voorhees resurrects him.
0: I mean, probably. <laughs> God. That, Wouldn't
2: that be funny if, like, actually um, somebody named Voorhees was like, I, that's it, I'm taking it. I'm, I'm resurrecting dagger. this franchise.
0: <laughs> Just watch. It's
1: going to be another Hulu original. Right, right, <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Although, but, admittedly, I did like the Hellraiser one. The, I wanted to point out that the other top series, Jason versus Leatherface, was written by nancy collins with david imhoff and david was the guy who i worked with at new line and um he was the licensing guy and and i worked with them on the nightmare on elm street stuff and then on the jason Goat to hell stuff which is probably also why jim Salakrup might have called me for the job was because you know dave imhoff was involved (laughs) but nancy collins is a very famous horror writer she did yeah uh, she did a whole series of books on a vam- female vampire named Sonia Blue, and yep. I love her stuff. In my storage unit, where I have a whole bunch of bookshelves, I have a whole bookshelf of nothing but Nancy Collins books. I've got where the Sonia. I've got Sonia two- Blue books. Were like uh, those were published by by White Wolf, right? Uh, some of them they were republished by by White yeah Wolf. yeah okay. Um, so I've got my three three bookshelves of Stephen King. One bookshelf of Clyde Barker and then a then a literal one shelf of Nancy Collins. And those are the those are the three authors whose works I automatically will just snap up the moment it's public. So I so I didn't ever feel bad that she got to do Jason versus Leatherface because I was like, How can I be mad that Nancy Collins got it? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty
0: good. It's it's like it's one of those things where I'm like, it it's way better than it has any right to be. Right,
1: right. And there is another appearance that a lot of people, and I'd have to go back and look to see if it ever saw print in the comics. I think it did as an ad. But okay. we, we did a promotional poster for Child's Play, the series. And in it, Chucky is standing amidst all these bloody things. And he's, he's tossing up a, a lament configuration puzzle box. Okay. And then around him on the floor, there's a, a bloody machete, a bloody hockey mask, Freddy's glove, nice. a f- dead face hugger. It's all these all these horror movie things. And Chucky's standing there, like, tossing a puzzle box, like, yeah, fuck you. I love that. You know, That's and that, great. that was our ad. Uh, we sent that poster out to comic book stores to promote Child's Play, the series. I think it might have appeared in an ad somewhere uh, in like Innovation Comics, but that would actually be the first appearance of Jason's mask in the comic okay. world.
0: That's really funny,
1: you know. And and also it was the biggest crossover ever. I think there was a chainsaw. There was a chainsaw too, and I think the book of the book from Evil Dead was part of a corner the that was in there. Guy. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was kind of like I literally. I had the artist, who was Derek Robertson, the guy who co-created The Boys. I had him draw kind of just like, hey, draw this, hey, draw this, hey, draw this, hey, draw this. And it was the biggest horror movie crossover, that poster. It was, it was a I, lot of fun to do.
0: I mean, I didn't find any reference to it, but there is always the possibility that I missed it. So I'm I'm really sad that, that this possibly never saw print. I would have a framed copy of it on my wall if it
1: did. It, the, the poster saw print. Whether it's, oh man, I was
2: gonna say I want a poster.
1: Yeah, whether whether, if I find it, I'll I'll get you one. Um, because I think I have, I think I have like half a box of them somewhere. (laughs) Ooh, I used to give it out to people at conventions. I was like, oh, maybe I maybe I shouldn't give all of these. (laughs) So I think I have a few left.
2: Right, right, right.
1: We can offer you holographic stickers in exchange. Oh, fantastic!
2: Yes, (laughs) Yes. we have we have things to trade. Absolutely, okay.
1: Okay. If you have Jason Momoa, I'll trade him.
0: <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Oh my do.
2: gosh. Listen, we have thrown it into the, into the ether many Manifested. a time for right, Jason yeah. Momoa to come on. <laughs> right.
0: So. Before we talk more about what you've been working on lately, I'm curious, does anyone have any final thoughts about Jason Goes to Hell?
2: Well, I think that the movie felt like it was, like, more like it was trying to make fun of itself, which may mm. or may not have been the overall goal, but... It ended up taking things that you know make it Friday the Thirteenth, and like watering them down to their heiress profiles, like a Jason flavored LaCroix. And I can't really be mad at that. We got all the good. We got all the good flavor notes. You know what I'm saying?
0: It was someone like, in another room shouting Jason Voorhees while you drank a can of sparkling water. <laughs> well,
2: I mean, really, literally, like we saw him most of the time in like a yeah. mirror. <laughs> Which I again I did like that, so I, I really couldn't be mad at the film. Yeah, but in the end, it was a shoehorn love triangle as well. You know, we you know how much I love a shoehorn triangle <laughs> love triangle. <laughs> but you know, overall, I had a good time with it. I had fun watching it, and I I had more fun reading the comics for a good Agreed. For Darn good, good. So. I don't know why I just said Dard tootin', but here we are.
1: (laughs) There is something uh, in the comics that I didn't even remember that I had done. And I was actually just interviewed. They're doing a documentary on Jason Goes to Hell. And I was interviewed for that. And the guy was like, why is one of the characters, like, male characters, semi-nude in your comic and he's not in the movie? (laughs) Ah! (laughs) And and I was like, well, because I'm gay number one. And, and I always feel like, you know, we already the movie opens with a semi nude woman getting into the shower. It literally opens that way. So if we're going to have that, we should at least have a guy with his shirt off or in his underwear or something like that. He's And, and he was like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. And I'm like, you know, maybe it didn't happen that way in the movie, but in my brain, that scene, he was in the bathroom, or he was in his boxer shorts, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, hold the towel
2: over. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, very, very uh, appropriately placed towel. Yeah, 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 and
1: and I mean, like, we didn't even have
0: that scene in the movie, right?
1: Like, right. I don't remember no No, yeah. a no. and and but it but it was a but it was one of those things that it was in the script that 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 the character was there, but I don't I don't recall that the the scene was him showering or or you know whatever, but I I was just like, hey, if I get a chance to give something to the female audience and the gay male audience as well, you know, great, I'll do that. So I put something in there for the ladies too.
2: <laughs> Snaps to that.
1: I mean, I, speaking as members of
0: the queer community and also as a lady, I'm pretty sure we both salute you for this. <laughs> yes,
1: absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I wasn't able to put, this was, I think, the only project I've ever written that I wasn't able to put anything gay in. One of the aspects of my career that I am most conscious of is diversity. And long before people were using woke as a bad word, I was in every one of my scripts, looking for ways to feature people, diverse people, and whether that meant that I was putting people of color in or disabled people or people who were queer or people who were a different religion, or Mm -hmm. people who were from a different culture. I love doing stuff like that because it's reflective of the world around us. And even if you're writing a fantasy based book, why does it need to only be white people? Or why does it only need to be white men? And so everything I do, I'm always looking for ways to do that. And When you're working on an adaptation of a movie, it's hard to You you know, you can't say, well, this character is going to be black if the character is not black in the film. And, you know, or this character is going to be gay if the character is not gay in the film. So with film adaptations, it's a lot harder to kind of work those things in. But I really tried with all the rest of my work to make sure that that diversity and representation is a keystone for everything I do. That's awesome. And I wish
0: that I had something profound and deep that I could like Tack onto this, but I don't.
1: Instead of diversity, I was able to deliver though the, the equal semi nudity and the world's most filthy comic panel. <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah. I feel like that's uh, that's a pretty good claim to fame,
1: right? Right. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent.
0: I mean, Sarah and I watched the movie together, and we were talking about why it didn't work for us. We didn't hate it, but just it didn't quite work for us. And she summed it up really well, so I want to give her full credit for this, which is. Jason doesn't so much have a character as his character is the setting. His character is the woods and camp and the ambiguity of being a young adult who's alone for the first time. His character is so intrinsically tied to the setting that when he's removed from it, it doesn't really work without those elements being translated in a meaningful way. Compared to Freddy, where the fear represents something internalized, or Candyman, where it's systemic, Jason represents something really specific, that pivotal moment in young adulthood where freedom and fear are intertwined. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. Proof that I am punching up
1: with person that I am marrying. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sarah's pretty amazing. I'm not gonna
1: lie. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's really a very apt description of what should be the the background for this. And I really, as I said earlier, the, the bullying aspect and the outsider aspect and so forth to me, Friday the Thirteenth and Jason Voorhees it's baked into its DNA in ways that, that other other slashers don't have when Sarah told me that I was
0: like wow you just made Jason Voorhees kind of deep for me and I love that and then right. we riffed for about 20 minutes on what a good Jason movie would be like after you know we had all these incarnations and mm-hmm. we settled on the idea of him being kind of like a genus loci like kind of like you know the spirit of the place that right that manifests and we like that but yeah Okay, so Andy, let's talk a little bit more about you specifically and what you've been working on lately. I know that you have been working on some bookazines from movies and are also going to be kickstarting some stuff next year, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, so So what can you tell us about it?
1: My career is is still stuck in this place, you know, the comics in Hollywood. And recently I got referred to a company to write bookazines. And for those people who don't know what that means... You've seen them. You just didn't know that was the name for them. Bookazines (laughs) are the 100-page, square-bound, full-color magazine-slash-books that are sold at grocery store newsstands. So when you're at the checkout counter and you see 100-page, square-bound book about Marilyn Monroe or Elvis Presley or the Beatles or Superman or Ant-Man or Iron Man, those are Bookazines. And the, the publishers who do them generally put them out during some anniversary or when a new movie's coming out or or something like that. They're usually in connection with something. So I have uh, written five of those now. Three of them are out. I did an N1 at the start of the year for when Mania came out. I did the 60th anniversary of Iron Man. It's actually my second book on Iron Man. Wow. Because I did an official book for Del Rey called Iron Man Beneath the Armor. And then the third one I did was The Little Mermaid, which was a huge, huge project. I'm so happy that I was able to, it's the whole history of The Little Mermaid from the original Hans Christian Andersen story, to Disney's movie, to the stage play, to the to the new movie. But in that, I actually got to finally, finally settle the whole story of what the reality of the penis castles on the Little Mermaid poster. <laughs> yes! Are, yeah. We had
2: one of those VHS. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. What is also, that? Also,
0: Jessica's face when you were talking about this <laughs> was...
2: Because, listen, up until I was 10 years old, I thought I was going to be a mermaid when I grew up. And I had some, like, naysaying babysitter be like, you know, you can't actually do that, right? Yeah, well, now it's the year of our lord, Beyonce, 2023, and I can be a freaking mermaid if I want to. All I have to do is go buy a uh, $4,000 silicone tail. No big deal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or you can go work for one of those companies that'll buy it for you. You just have to spend all your time in the water don't tempt me <laughs> so yeah i finally get to answer that question about what happened with that poster was it really meant to be phallic symbols was it an angry disney employee all the rumors all the rumors finally get answered by the people who did the poster and that's in my bookazine. so in december i've got one coming out on aquaman It'll be the first ever book published about Aquaman. And then in, I think it'll be probably February next year, I have a Chadwick Boseman Black Panther book. I think they're putting it out for Mm -hmm. Black History Month. And then I've recently written six young adult graphic novels called Fractured Fairy Tales that are very hard to find. You can find them on Amazon pretty easily, but Amazon and and the publisher are the only two places to buy it because they market them to school libraries not to comic stores. and oh, Yeah, so, I was
2: going to say, my mom had some of those yeah, at her school library. She was a middle school librarian, good. yeah. <laughs> good.
1: And so I did those, and those are kind of contemporary retellings of fairy tales set in literally now. Uh, nice. So like the Cinderella character uh, in the story, uh, she gets her dress from uh, a gay Broadway costume designer who is the father of her best friend, who's a disabled kid that she helps. And so to reward her for disabled for helping his disabled son, he makes her this fancy dress for prom. And then she mm-hmm. drops her phone at prom and the guy who's, who's trying to find her has to take the phone around to every girl at school to see whose face will open the phone. That's so good. So instead of a glass slipper, it's an I, it's an iPhone, you know? I did those things. The Little Mermaid stories about a girl who's on the swim team, and she has to make a choice between throwing a swim match for the girl who is the second person on the swim team. She has to make a choice: is she going to throw the swim match and get a guaranteed audition for the American Idol-like show in this mm-hmm. universe? Because the girl knows her uncle works on the show, so will she throw the swim at to get a guaranteed audition to sing on the show, or is she going to swim her best? So it's the mermaid making the choice about losing her voice, whether she's going to be true to herself and lose her voice or not. I try mm-hmm. to take these things and make them very much about now, about things that kids filthy now. So I did those and then next year I am going to be kickstarting three different projects at the start of the year. One will be a mini series that will be all about H H Holmes, America's first serial killer set in the late 1800s and early 1900s in Chicago. He had a, a what was affectionately known as the Murder Castle. He had a hotel in in chicago during the time of the world's fair and people would check in but they would not check out i'm
0: definitely gonna have to kickstart that because that's one of sarah's favorite topics good
1: good well it's a very twisty twisty story the art for that's gonna be by thomas tenney who is a marvel artist worked on forceworks and also Mm -hmm. worked on the creep show tv show and he's working with typo negative on a graphic novel right now the band typo negative so that's going to be one project on H.H. Holmes. So that's a horror project, not for kids. And then on the flip side, I'm doing a Wizard of Oz comic series that I'm kickstarting. The art for that is going to be by Anna Marie Cool uh, and Barb Kaelberg, uh, both of whom did Barbie for Marvel and Soul Searchers and Company for Claypool. And it's going to look like it was illustrated by the original Oz illustrator, John R. Neal. It's going to be very woodcut looking and very beautiful work. So that'll be my second project. So I've got the horror one and then I've got a kid's one. And then smack in the middle there, the third project that I'll be doing is going to be an auto slash bio comic. It'll be partially my autobiography and partially... One of my uncle's biography, it'll be about me deciding not to commit suicide at a certain point in my life. Mm. And then what I have accomplished after that decision. And then it'll be about my uncle who did commit suicide and what he had accomplished and what he could have accomplished had he not committed suicide for being gay. Mm. And then it'll also be a little bit of the history of the gay rights movement in the last hundred years. And my uncle is somebody that most everybody knows who it is. It's Alan Turing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. So, you know, he's the guy who helped win World War II with his code breaking. And he's yeah. he's the guy who created computers. And he's also my uncle who committed suicide because they were giving him electroshock treatments and trying to cure him of being gay. And so he committed suicide. What could that man who ended World War Two and invented computers what could he have done with his life if if things had been different? Right.
0: the man whose name is associated with the test for like you know distinguishing a i
1: yeah wow yeah wow. and and then looking at what I've accomplished in in my life and my career as an openly gay writer and activist after I made the decision to not commit suicide, and so it'll yeah. be kind of an interesting, very introspective story. I won't say it's like Fun Home, like Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, but that's probably the closest to it in the the, the autobio world. She did her story about her father who was gay and herself as a lesbian cartoonist. Mine is a little more, I won't say abstract than that, but it is dealing with two, two generations of people and then also the whole history of where the gay rights movement. So it's going it's to be a hefty project. Also the one that scares me the most <laughs> because it's going it to be very vulnerable. I'm going to talk about what it meant to be the first openly gay person in the comic industry and how, how much that hurt my career, uh, mm-hmm. how many editors would work with me and how many projects were pulled away from me all because of that, because people were homophobic and what it meant when, you know, I was no longer alone and what it meant when other people started coming out and then more people started coming out and then more people started coming out and what it meant to uh I co-founded the organization Prism Comics that supports mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus creators and comics and fans and creating that was you know another part of my activism in there. This year was the thirty-sixth out in comics panel at San Diego comic-con I skipped four years of it, but I, but it was year 36 and I've done 32 of them. And next year we're going to get the Guinness book, of world's record for the lo- world's longest running comic book panel. And awesome, you know, That's those, so cool. those are all things that, that it's been an amazing ride getting to work on all these cool properties, you know, with Freddie and Jason and Chucky and, and. X-Files and Star Wars and Boba Fett. You know, all these things I've gotten to be a part of as somebody who had to fight tooth and nail to get every job I got, and I still was able to get them, and I was still, still able to do in them things that advanced not just gay diversity, but diversity for everyone. And one of my proudest moments was when I wrote an aboriginal character in a couple of the Star Trek books and i said you know we've never seen an, an aboriginal character in star trek what would what would it be like for somebody who's who's from that tribal element in the 24th century how would their world have changed with with the change in technology we we right now in humanity we have tribes of people who don't know what a cell phone is they don't know what they may have blue gene they're lost in terms of the world, but they don't subscribe to our technology. They don't know what the internet is. They are choosing to live a different life. And what would that life be like in, in an era where there is patience? <laughs> and so I was really happy when I got to put an aborigine character on, on the ship. It wasn't just an alien. It was somebody who was one of us. And I got to write a whole new perspective with that character. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really looking forward to seeing *Prey*, the Predator movie that had the the Native American character. I've heard absolutely it, phenomenal.
0: I've heard it's phenomenal. fantastic,
1: and that is exactly the type of movie and the, it's the type of thing that I try in my work to do. I once asked the producers of *Farscape*. They were on a panel at Comic Con. Why is it that in 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 your show? That you have you have one human character and everybody else is alien. Every single character is alien except for this one human, and yet in four years you have yet to have a gay alien. And they looked at each other like I had just smacked them with baseball bats. And one of them finally said, "Because we didn't think of it." And I was like, Good Lord. "I was like, you need to think of it. You need to think about." putting people in who have different skin colors you need to pe- put people in who have different abilities and and disabilities you need to put people in who have different backgrounds it's fascinating to write things that are not what you know because you get to learn about that as a writer if all you're writing is what you know you're you're just you're missing out so i always am asking what can I do to make my work more diverse and represent more voices and uh, how will that make it better? So you'll see that in, in, you know, in my upcoming work, there's one other project that that I have coming up soon. It'll be coming out next spring and it's a castle of horror anthology. And mm-hmm. that will be a all LGBTQ plus horror anthology that I'm editing and awesome. I tried to have gender parity in it. I I tried to have fifty percent male identified and fifty percent female identified and some non-binary as well. But unfortunately I couldn't quite get equal, but I did as well as I could in terms of getting getting representation of everybody's voice in there. That's great. And that will be coming out in the spring. It'll be a POD book, so people can when they order it, it'll be printed for them. It's coming out next spring from Castlebridge Media, and it should be a lot of fun. As the editor, I can tell you there will be some stories in there that are just absolutely balls to the wall horror, and then there's stuff that's going to be creepy, and there's, there's there's all kinds of things. My particular story in the real world: I was gay bashed on St. Patrick's Day this year. I was attacked by somebody on the oh, street. Man. They caused a traumatic brain injury to me and in my story there is someone who has that happen to them and then they are able to exact revenge on their basher in ways that I would never do Dexter might
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: good but Hannibal Lecter might and in the story it's, it's a very very personal story and it gets very dark very very dark um, because Somebody who has been the victim of a warrantless crime, somebody who's attacked just for what they are, whether it's a, a woman or a person of color or a gay person, when they're attacked just for what they literally are, what they, their core being, and that's what they're attacked for, it can, it can bring up some very, very dark things. And so my way of coping with it is writing that story. And hopefully by the end of it, I'll be, I'll feel a little lighter. I'm laughing about it, but it's, you know, it's, it's very therapeutic to to write that type of, that type of thing sometimes.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. How can people support you in your work?
1: My website is my name, which everyone constantly misspells. So it's andymangles.com. You'll probably have a link to it somewhere there. But if you think of my name, it's like angels with an M in front of it. Uh, that's how to spell it love it but yeah we'll include a link in the show notes good good yeah Yeah. so it's andymangles.com I'm also on Facebook my friend's list is full so but I have have made it a choice that just like I live my life truthfully like my Facebook page I don't hide anything on there so if you're a fan of mine you want to follow me you can follow it and you're going to see the same content that my friends see um, because I, I feel like, uh, I've, I've agreed to live my life openly and yeah, there's things I don't say or do publicly, but when it comes to my career or my work, it's all out there for the public to see.
0: I mean, the reason that this episode is taking place is because I found you on Facebook and it, I was just like, Oh, Hey, we
1: have a bunch of mutuals. I
0: can I can probably hit them up. It's probably cool.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and I thought it was fantastic. You're getting married. And I'm an ordained minister, and I have married 20 people, 18 of them at Comic Cons.
0: If I had known this, I would have hit you up. I would have paid for your plane <laughs> ticket
1: to come down.
2: I don't have plans to get married. But, but I am going but to
1: keep There this you go. Keep it in, in mind. Keep pocket. it in mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I married 18 of them at Denver, t- uh, two different Denver Comic Cons, and then two people here in Portland, or two couples here in Portland. But I have never had one of my comics. Be a centerpiece in in a wedding so that's kind of fun
0: i will send you a photo of it when it happens oh that's fantastic that's gonna be, it's going to be your comic and then we've also got a slapped copy of the
1: spider man wedding issue <laughs> amazing fantastic i'll tell you when i got married to my husband i was walked down the aisle by wonder woman and we had our honor guard that we walked through uh was mandalorians on one side and Starfleet officers on the other side. And they they raised, the Starfleet officers all raised swords and the Mandalorians all raised their guns. And then that was the bow that we walked under as we went up to to get married. Then Wonder Woman walked me up. So we had a very geek wedding.
2: Oh my gosh, I'm scribbling notes. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I'm not even in a relationship. (laughs) Right,
1: right, right, right. (laughs) So I wish you and Sarah, you know, all the best with, with your wedding. Oh, thank you. It's a fantastic thing to be a part of, even in a small way.
0: Uh, you're definitely not a small way involved in our wedding. So thank you so yeah. much for uh, for being here. It means a lot. All right. What do you say we all move on to brain wrinkles? Okay.
1: You two answer this first. Yeah. <laughs> okay. so, you want to go first?
2: Absolutely. I've been thinking about the resurgence of the board game and how much more accepting our society has become to these really interesting games that people are creating. And Mike and I are friends with Kelly, or Socks, who is the social media maestro for Goblin Brothers Games, which is a board game shop in downtown Petaluma. And it's just such a great spot. It's super popular And I also know of so many other cafes and stores that are starting to open up more gaming spaces to allow a space for people to play in person and meet up and form community. And it's just so amazing to see some love for these types of activities when so many times in the past, we've just kind of been scoffed at for enjoying ourselves with our friends. So I just love to see it. So I'm actually ending on a positive note for once.
0: Oh, man. So it's going to be flipped because I'm going to be grousing about something.
2: (laughs) Uh Oh, I'm usually the grouse. I'm usually the one like dragging a soapbox behind me really obnoxiously.
0: She was on the other foot, Fraser. (laughs) So uh, I was in Sacramento the other week uh, for Sarah's second tattoo, which looks amazing, by the way. And I hit up a local shop at one point during her session just because she was like, will you get out of here and like leave us alone for a little bit? <laughs> and so I was at a comic shop. I wound up chatting with the clerk and a regular who. Like the, the topic of comic book movies came up and I mentioned how I was looking forward to the marbles. And then there was like some coded language that felt kind of misogynist from the regular. Uh, uh. And he was like, I don't know anyone that's looking forward to that. And I was like, well, I do, but I also hang out with a lot of women, so (laughs) like, my family is looking forward to it. My friends who collect comics are looking forward to it. Like Every comic book podcast that we're friends with is looking forward to it, but when I said that, the guys didn't know how to respond. I took that as my cue to leave, and I don't know, I was just really
1: bummed to encounter this nonsense in the year of our Lord Beyonce, 2023. And you left and went back to the woman that you're going to marry. And they left and went back to their, their hobbit hole.
0: <laughs> Probably. I mean, my my incredibly hot domestic partner slash fiance, who is getting even hotter because she's getting cool witchy tattoos on her arm.
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. She's so fucking cool.
0: Like, painfully cool. Like, beyond any right that I have to be associated with.
2: I'm just, like, amazed that she wants to hang out with me, too. Like, I'm like, okay, I don't know why. No, she, like... <laughs>
0: Like Sarah is incredibly cool. And like the fact where she was like, well, we have to have like a comic book themed wedding, like or it has to be tied into comic books somehow. I'm like, all right. Like if you insist,
2: you should see the invitation. It's literally the fucking cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like I'm tempted to like fight my way out of my recording studio to go grab one because <laughs> it's just like. Amazing.
0: Yeah. We, we found like an old school, like horror comic themed wedding invitation. It was very good. Oh, great. Great.
1: Yeah. You know, um on my mind lately I've got a couple of things one directly related to comics and that's uh I'm so happy that Mark Wade is back at DC Comics and uh that he's getting to write um fun comics things that are both reflective of continuity and modern and things that are not angsty, and things that are not connected to forty thousand other books.
0: Batman, Superman.
1: Yeah, the, the the Batman, Superman world's finest. The Teen Titans book he, he's doing is just lovely. So I'm really happy about that. But I was in a discussion with somebody earlier today, and we were talking about the AI thing, which is of course on my mind. I I found out a couple yeah. of days ago that that they scraped nine of my books. For the AI intelligence thing, and what? They, oh,
0: like OpenAI did,
1: yeah, OpenAI. Oh, so
0: are you, you going to join that class action lawsuit against? them? I am,
1: I am. Yeah, I, good. They you should. They they won't take on any more defendants because they've got their like core defendants, but I. But they are taking on secondary people who will be a part of the lawsuit, and I'll be I'll be one of those. But yeah, they scraped nine of my books, and I was talking to my friend about the AI overlords and where all this is going and we had just been talking about 3D printing and and I was like this we're we're entering a realm where we are coming into Star Trek world. Yes. A 3D printer is essentially a replicator and eventually right they will they will be able to to have some way to have that replicate food. And, you know,
0: I mean, that's not even mm -hmm. theoretical at this point. They're starting to do it.
1: Right. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. so it's we're getting into that realm and we're now we're now to the point where what AI is doing to us is a it's everyone's going to, you know, not have jobs because once the AI is taking care of everything, what are people going to do? Uh, But then on top of that, people will be able to kind of get whatever they want when they're sitting at home. We already do that with if you want to go see a movie, you can stream the movie to your house. If you want to read a book, you can download it to your Kindle. You don't need to go to a store anymore for anything. And very soon with 3D printing, we're looking at you're going to be able to 3D print your food. Right now, um I mean you two can see behind me all the all these toys. These are all custom Mego action figures that I'm doing. I'm 3D printing characters that you know toy companies don't make so fine i'll make my own right and we're we're in a world now where that is so common and the next and the generation that's coming up is going to going to not know a world in which you couldn't 3d print whatever you wanted that's just what they're going to know they're already in a world in which 2 year olds are playing with iPhones with AI taking over so much and AI being controlled by people who have lots of money. It's a weird thing. It's like it feels like it should be celebratory, but it also feels like how irrelevant are people going to be once they allow all this computer stuff to take over reality for them? Which is the Disney movie in which everyone's like fat and sitting around in chairs? Is that Wally?
2: Yeah, it's Wally. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and it kind of feels like that's that's where we're heading in the next twenty years, where everyone's just going to be living in a virtual reality world and three D printing their food, and nobody's going to be working. And it's a weird thing because technology has has overtaken all this. And what the Writers Guild of America went on strike for, and what this lawsuit about AI scraping my books is for, is the last thing that we have that they can't take away from us is creativity. And yet that's what the studios and the and the AI people are trying to do. They're trying to replicate creativity. You know, when artists are using AI to draw their comics because now they can, and it's really just stealing other people's art, and they're using Chat GPT to create their plots or their stories or their dialogue what at what point have they lost any creativity they had and it's all just computer creativity so i think with the the writer's guild strike and everything else we're really looking at we have to limit this somehow now because it's going to destroy everything about our intake of of entertainment and our intake of learning and, and all, all that's going to be destroyed if we don't put some limits on it now. So that's what I've been thinking about. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty prescient, deep thing to think about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, like, Andy, first of all, thank you for sending us out on a much deeper note than we normally go out <laughs> on. But also, like, yep. thank you so much for being here. This was really lovely to get you to talk about this and to provide us with all these little backstories. It was phenomenal. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. It's been it's been a lot of fun to talk with you. Thank you, Jessica.
0: This was an amazing conversation. And yeah. We will be back next week with another episode of Dollar Bin Discoveries. And then after that, we will have another deep dive. No idea what that's going to be because who knows. But until then, stay safe out there and we will see you in the stacks.
2: Thanks for listening to Ten Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website.
0: This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com.
2: If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to 10centtakes.com or shoot an email to 10centtakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now, the official podcast account is Ten Cent Takes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V A N S A U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes.
1: If you'd like to get in touch with me, the best ways are through my website, AndyMangles.com. There's a link there. You can email me through that, or on Facebook. I am on Twitter X for now, but only just because there's still a few people I follow. I don't actually use it. I just follow people through it. And I'm kind of on Instagram, but I'm an old man, so Instagram followers are not my thing. Also, I do a lot of conventions, and I'm always happy to be at conventions when people want to guest, and I try and be as friendly as possible to fans because, you know, without fans, where would we be? And I'm a fan. Like, I like to meet people, so I want people, when they meet me, to have their experience be the best possible experience for them.
0: If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen.
2: Stay safe out there.
0: And support your local comic shop.